Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. From the Royal York Hotel in downtown Toronto, welcome to the Empire Club of Canada. For those of you just joining us through either our webcast or our podcast, welcome to the meeting. Before our distinguished speaker is introduced today, it gives me great pleasure to introduce our head table guests. I would ask each guest to rise for a brief moment and be seated as your name is called. At this point, I would ask the audience to refrain from applauding until all of the head table guests have been introduced. And let's see how that goes. Uh, our guest speaker, of course, Mr. Ken Curtis, Chairman, Starfoot Investment Holdings. Mr. George Cook, Chair, Omer's Administration Corporation, past President, Empire Club of Canada. M.J. Perry, Ph.D. student in theology, owner Mr. Discount Limited and director, Empire Club of Canada. Mr. Douglas Derry, past president, Empire Club of Canada. Ms. Catherine Murray, host, BNN's Business Day PM and Market Call Tonight. The Honorable Bob Ray, former Premier of Ontario. Ms. Antoinette Tomillo, director, Empire Club of Canada. Mr. Michael Roland, Chief Investment Officer, Private Markets, Omers. And my name is Barbara Jessen. I'm the President of Jessen & Company Communications and the President of the Empire Club of Canada. Ladies and gentlemen, your head table guests. We are pleased to welcome a number of students from the Rotman School of Management, University of Toronto, and from Centennial College. Students, please rise to be recognized. Thank you to TD Securities, Thank you to TD Securities, Labatt Breweries, and Mr. Discount for sponsoring our student table this afternoon. I am full of admiration for our guest speaker today. He appears to have created a well-established beachhead in the Asia-Pacific investment market when many of us are still trying to figure out who the players are and where the real opportunities lie. As Canada struggles to find common ground to renew the North American Free Trade Agreement with our largest trading partner, many believe we must look to the East. Last week, reporter Kevin Carmichael, writing in McLean, suggested that in, in July, Canada had a prelude to what our economy could look like if we failed to negotiate the NAFTA deal. As automotive, as automotive plants closed for extended periods to retool, Stats Canada revealed that Canadian export of goods had slumped and imports declined rapidly. According to Carmichael, the July trade report serves as a cautionary tale of what life could be like without NAFTA. It's anticipated that trade in cars, trucks, and parts should rebound in the months ahead as carmakers get back to work. But he argues persuasively that this summer we had a glimpse of what happens when the free flow of goods in, in North America is disrupted. While we focus on NAFTA, Canada has already begun the pivot to the east. This fall could see decisions on a China free trade agreement and an updated TPP. Diversifying trade markets with, ac with access in Asia could offer ma major opportunities for Canadian business and also send a signal to the United States that while North American free trade is agreement is important, Canadian exports can go elsewhere. Still, Canadians have been trying to do deals, particularly in China, since the economic surge began there in 2001. When I began my own business in 2002, one of my largest clients, a major Canadian company, had just entered into a joint venture deal with a Chinese partner. We announced the deal with much fanfare, and then very quietly two years later, the company closed its plant into retreat. They had found that methods of doing business were too different from their own corporate culture. Eastern inscrutability has become something of a cliché. Nevertheless, for many of us, the rules of the game will be very different from those we are familiar with as we build these new trade relationships. Some years ago, I read what I thought was a fascinating reflection on how Asian design principles had won the race against leading Western electronics manufacturers. The Western approach to design had followed a functional model with buttons that clearly indicated exactly what they were and intended to do. My dream, by the way. The Asian model, the sleek, shiny black boxes, clean lines, a facade uninterrupted by any obvious buttons or switches came to dominate the industry. It seemed to me as I read this account that it provided a metaphor that all that we in the West find so challenging about Asia. Our guest today can help us to better understand these, I hope, and maneuver these uncharted waters. Ken Curtis is one of the world's leading investment bankers, investment advisors, 
and analyst of Asian economies and business in Asia. He has led a number of large international corporate transactions centered on Asia and pioneered in several investment bank banking areas. Just to um, name a few examples, he led the successful opening and establishment of the Singapore REIT market, the groundbreaking natural gas transa transactions between China and Australia, the restructuring of Japanese financial institutions, the restructuring and listing as public companies of major Chinese firms, including PetroChina and the Bank of China, as well as privatizations, major investments and acquisitions in the telecom, energy, transportation and financial sectors. And if that isn't enough, Mr. Dr. Cortese is a counselor of the Asia Society of New York, a director of the Global Policy Institute of the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada, a member of the advisory boards of the Schulich School of Business Management and of Glendon College, of the Economic Strategy Institute Washington, and a trustee of Singapore Management University. He has lectured at Kyo and Tokyo Universities, Japan's two most prestigious international institutions. And he is a member of the Advisory Council on Economic Growth, which advises the Government of Canada on major domestic and international economic initiatives. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Mr. Ken Cortese to our podium. Head table guests, ladies and gentlemen. Barbara, that was such a beautiful introduction. If my mom was here, she would ask you to continue. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and my father would have wondered who you were talking about. Um, you know, I see uh, people in the room uh, that I've known for uh, <clears throat> for many years and many new friends, so I'm really happy to be in Toronto. When I got off the plane this morning, summer was here, finally. Uh, it's a beautiful day. There's so much to talk about. Someone uh, a little earlier today, before you started lunch, asked me uh, how I got into this business. Um, actually, I started my career as an economist. Um, <clears throat> uh, you, you know about economists. Uh, and I, I became an economist because I thought I didn't have enough uh, charisma to be an accountant. <laughs> uh, and, <clears throat> and I can compete on that with any, any accountants in the room. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> you know about economists. There was this... Uh, Economist out hiking in the back country of New Zealand, and it was springtime, and he came across a flock of sheep, and there are all these young lambs that were so cute. He wanted to take one home to his daughter, <clears throat> so he went to the shepherd and he said, um, um, "If I can guess how many uh, sheep you have in your flock, will you guess? Will you give me one?" Uh, the shepherd looked at this guy, a city slicker. He probably thought he couldn't even park his bicycle. <clears throat> He said, yeah, sure, go ahead. So the guy made a few calculations, and he said, um, I think you've got 179 sheep. He said, what? I think you have 179 sheep. The shepherd said, how did you figure that out? I do have 179. I said, you know, I'm an economist. I'm good with numbers. So I guess I, I won my bet. Yeah, yeah, take one. So he bent over. He picked up one of the animals, was walking off. And the shepherd said, stop, stop, wait a minute, wait a minute. Um, uh, there's a problem here. I want to figure out really what you studied at university. What a question, the economist said to himself. He said, okay, you'll never figure it out. He said, I bet you studied economics. He said, how, how, how could you guess that? He said, because you picked up my dog. <laughs> so, so um, when my mom asked me why I left economics to go into investment banking, it was because I wanted to stop guessing, right, and, and picking up a lot of dogs. There may be a few dogs in what I have to tell you today, um, but um, I think this is a great time for us to be having this, uh, this discussion um, because, uh, you know, for so many reasons, and there's just so much going on. Um, this week at the UN, we have virtually all of the leaders who are driving countries to reshape this world. Our Prime Minister speaking, I believe, today. Uh, Trump gave his rocket man speech a couple days ago. Uh, President Xi will be speaking later this week. And, and America and China are basically 
the two powers increasingly that are driving this world. Someone said to me the other day, imagine the unthinkable. Imagine a world where China had a leader like Trump. Both countries had a Trump. Uh, so I, th I think it's, it's time for us to think a little bit more than maybe we have in the past about how we position this country as we do look ahead. Because as we look ahead, we, you know, we see extraordinary technological change starting to take place. If we were in Toronto in 1900, the, the streets would have been clogged with horses. By 1915, they were almost all gone. And I think that's the type of technological change that's at hand now. And that overlaps with globalization. And we may have in the past thought that China was all about cheap labor, but it's not anymore. China's out there working to drive these new technologies. Its ambition is to be a leader in many of these areas. When Bob, uh, Ray uh, first went to China, I believe it was 1986, Bob. Uh, I mean, the, the economy of Canada was significantly larger than the economy of China. Today, China's economy is six times larger than that of Canada. And they're going at 7%, 6% a year. So, you know, you just do the compounding. Even if that falls to 5% a year, you continue to do the compounding with those great numbers you can see where this goes over time. We had a relationship with China that was nurtured, that was developed, uh, going back to the 1960s, the late 60s. In fact, the country became the go-to supplier for wheat when the Chinese really got stuck on the international markets. We had a place and position in China. I was, a few years ago, when we started our commodity trading company, I went with the guys who trade wheat to uh, Sinograin, which is responsible for much of China's uh, long-term wheat supply and food supply. And we got talking and talking, and we said, how does a guy from Goldman Sachs get involved in commodity trading? And I said, well, you know, I've been interested in commodities all my life, and I'm from Canada, a big country that does a lot of commodities. And you're from Canada? I said, yeah. He said, oh, come over here. We want to show you our special room. So he took me into this lovely room. It's called the Elvin Hamilton Room. <laughs> Amazing, right? Because in 1960, Elvin Hamilton, then our Minister of Agriculture, uh, broke, effectively, the U.S. blockade on trading wheat with China. And China was going through an extraordinary famine at the time. And all that credibility for our country was there. And I'd been nurtured, Trudeau, Roni, Kretchen, Paul Martin. Then I think we went backwards for a decade. And the Trudeau government, I think rightly, has re-engaged with China. Uh, one of the first things they did was to join the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which I'll come to later, uh, which I think was the right decision a decision to put back on the agenda a negotiation of a free trade and investment agreement with, with China. Because if we are going to continue to be so deeply dependent on America, and, and that, I mean, we're always going to be dependent on America, right? The geography is such a great part of politics and economics. But we're missing that other leg that we have to build, that part of the world that's going to be extremely dynamic, I think, still for many decades. And that's the Asian economies, and that the Asian economies are every day more driven by trade with China, investment from China, Chinese tourism, Chinese investment in technology, and China's deployment uh, across Asia in building the Asian-wide infrastructure. The Chinese economy, as we think, it, think about it, is also changing very quickly. Uh, think of it in 19, uh, 2012, for example, the service sector was about 40% of GDP. 
Today it's 52, 53% of GDP. 2006, the current account surplus was 10.4% of GDP. It'll be 2.4% of GDP this year. Net exports have been a negative contribution to GDP of nine over the last 10 years. When I hear people say China's driven by exports, they're 10 years out of data in their statistics. And that new China service, domestic-focused service economy is going to be a great uh, economy in which we can invest. All kinds of new companies d doing things in new ways, different ways are emerging. And I see ahead of us a real cycle of great opportunities in that sector over the next, next decade. But the Chinese companies no longer are just focused on China. I'm on the board of a large U.S. industrial company, which up until three years ago, we'd always increase profits every year, every year. 70, we have 76 factories in China. And then it's like we hit a brick wall. Profits fell, and then they fell further. And, you know, the easy explanation is that the Chinese government's making it tough for foreign companies. Well, it happens that the CEO of this company had worked in Asia in the 1990s. And he sort of continued to be very interested in this and how Asia was changing the world economy and what it meant for his business, businesses. So he said, that, that's too simple of an answer. And so the company took a very deep analysis, made a very deep analysis of what's happening. And this is what they found out. Uh, number one, they'd never put their best people in China. You know, they sent problem managers or people they... Number two, they always saw China as a source of cheap labor, in other words, low cost. Uh, and so they'd never invested in technology in China. And they found that their Chinese companies had passed them in many ways from a technological perspective. Number three, they had designed their products essentially for the US market. And you can go to Belgium or Canada and say, we aren't going to adapt this to your market. You're too small. Take it or leave it. You can't do that with China anymore. You could do that with China 20 years ago. You can't anymore. It's big enough now. It's dynamic enough now. Plus, you have the Chinese companies saying, yeah, we're going to adapt the products. We're going to make the products to Chinese needs. Fourth, Chinese companies today are doing increasing amounts of research very much like the Japanese and the Koreans did before them. Uh, if I have a patent on this watch, they aren't necessarily going to copy the watch, but they will put patents all around that watch so that I can't change it. So that's, that's a big issue. So you need to set up research in China. Another reason many companies have to set up research in China is because our universities and colleges aren't producing enough people in science, technology, engineering, uh, computers. Uh, proportion of our students going into those sectors has gone down over the last 30 years. And the proportion of those students who do still go to those uh, disciplines, more and more of them have gone into finance than into manufacturing or, or, or other um, globally traded uh, businesses. Whereas the Chinese have a huge emphasis on engineering and math and physics and chemistry and science. So they have a momentum on the research side that no one even imagined seven or eight years ago would be possible. Also today, the Chinese companies hire whoever they want to hire. If they want to hire you and you're working for United Technologies, we'll pay you the same salary. Uh, we'll give you share options. We'll give you lots of opportunity. We'll give you more opportunity. Because you can run our company. It's unlikely you're going to run United Technologies, right? And if you still say no, they have other ways to convince you. They'll go talk to your mother, talk to, <laughs> talk to your father, talk to your boyfriend, your husband. Um, so it's a, different, it's a different reality we're dealing with today. About a th it's, it's really a, another development that's fascinating. If you, in Guangdong, this part of southern China near Hong Kong, which when 
Deja Horvath, who's over there and runs what I think is a global service company, organization, maybe I should say, Deja, centered at York University that sells education to the world. Uh, Deja, when you were first going to China, uh, Guangdong was uh, a series of fishing villages. Today, it's a metropolis of 30 million people. And what's happening today is really interesting. This is the center of innovation increasingly in manufacturing. Um, we're starting to see companies, uh, startups, going to this region, startups from France, Germany, the US, starting up in Guangzhou. And once they get to a certain scale, then they migrate to Silicon, Silicon Valley. All the Silicon Valley VC funds have big operations in this part, this part of China as well. Um, their ambition is to turn that region of China into the equivalent of Singapore. But Singapore is only six million people. This, so that's the other thing we have to deal with here in China. It's the scale. And so I look at this dynamism and this growth, and we as a country, we have to, I believe, have extremely tight relationships with America. Didn't Talleyrand say that countries have neither interests, uh, neither have friends nor enemies, they only have interests? Well, it's in our interest to have very good, positive, friendly relations with America. Uh, the Trudeau government, I think, has worked very nimbly on doing that with the mercurial president that we have at the moment. Uh, but I also think that we have to deploy a similar effort to have very tight relations with China, to be seen as relevant for China. Uh, it's tough because they have a different system than we have. And frankly, they aren't going to change their system because we asked them to change it. You know, this is a Confucian culture where the state for thousands of years has been important in the economy like it is in Japan, Korea, Taiwan. However we think, I would expect that that will continue to be, the state will continue to play a role. Um, how can I say this? China is too big to bully and it's too old to seduce. <laughs> I think we just have to deal with it as it is. But, but it's no longer enough dealing just with China. We have to deal with China, with global China. As you look in Southeast Asia, as you look through the Middle East, if you look through Central Asia, China is the force that's driving those, those regions increasingly. I mentioned earlier we've joined the AIIB. Uh, if, if you think of it, the investment rollout in infrastructure across Asia over the next 15 years will be similar to what we've seen in China over the last 15 to 20 years. Think of it, China's built 80,000 kilometers of high-speed rail. Didn't have any 15 years ago. They're the world leader in this sector now. I can give you statistic after statistic, but if you think of the, the one road, or one belt, one road project to modernize and affect the Silk Road across Asia into Europe, both the sea lanes and over land. We're looking, I think, over the next 20 years at $25 trillion of investment. You might say, well, where's that coming from? Well, uh, if you take the Asian Investment Bank, Infrastructure Investment Bank, and George and I were sort of talking about these types of issues uh, over lunch, uh, they have 200 billion in, in callable capital, which they will lever 10 to 1, 11, 12 to 1. You know, with in, interest rates where they are today, uh, you have to be a little bit crazy not to take advantage of them, right? Last last week, you see, last week Austria issued 100-year bonds, 2.1%, 11 times oversubscribed. Um, so the Chinese are looking at this and they're saying this is exactly the type of funding we need to build out the infrastructure. The New Development Bank, centered in Shanghai, which is founded by the BRICS economies, uh, they also have a um, capital base of 200 billion, 250 billion, and the CEO of that told me he thought they could lever at 15 to 18 to one. 
So you start to see some numbers. The Silk Road Fund is going to be levered up to a trillion dollars, and so on and so forth. So there's already a lot of money being prepared to be deployed. And as this infrastructure is built, it will have a dynamic impact on growth and productivity throughout Asia. And that increasingly will drive the world economy. Imagine for ex that we're in Beijing today looking at the world. And we have our back to the ocean. So we're looking west. What do we see? We see 600 million people in Southeast Asia, strong growth, five, six, seven percent growth. We see through India, six, this year maybe five, but on six, seven percent growth for a while. We see Central Asia with all the great resources. We see the treasure chest of resources, which is Russia. And if we can build communication lines through these regions, both sea and land lines, we get into Eastern Europe and Europe itself. And through the Middle East down into Africa, you're talking about four billion people. That's how the Chinese are looking at the world. Of course, trading with America and North America and Europe is critical for them. But they see also these relations balancing over the next uh, few decades. So that's the environment in which we're in today. I wonder if in history, in years, we'll look back and say the election of Donald Trump, maybe it was a fluke, but more deep, deeply in the social psychology of America, is Trump not a reflection of America coming to terms with its trading, changing position in the world? You know, often when you face a challenge, uh, psychologists say you first you, you sort of refuse it. It doesn't exist. Disbelief. And for a long time, in my discussions with uh, world leaders, there are a lot of people who have all kinds of reasons that China would fail, right? It's going to implode. It's going to be this. It's going to... This can't be happening. They don't have a system like ours, therefore how can they be doing this? And then often psychologists tell us there's a period of anger. Um, and Donald Trump, when he speaks, you can feel that anger, right? You go to you watch his rallies, you feel that anger. He gave his, when his speech at the UN, he mentioned sovereignty 21 times. He didn't talk, use the word united once, other than when he said, I'm happy to be at the United Nations. I mean, the United Nations is, is a little bit about pooling sovereignty to some degree. He's going the other direction. So, and then thirdly, you, you come to accept reality before you embrace it. I'm at a school of let's get over the first couple steps quickly and, and get on to accepting reality and then seeing how we can embrace it to our advantage. I think in the past, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about in this country, oh, China... It's a different system. Mm. Should we accept Chinese investment? Uh, they, they have a human rights record which is different from ours. Uh, they're threatening. Uh, it's so far out of our mindset. I think we have to also look at that a bit, those issues a bit differently. Um, In, in a sense that that's the reality. We would like it to change. We'd like to see some type of convergence. But I think you're, ne you're never going to see a convergence between that culture and our culture. We aren't going to see a convergence between the German culture and the Canadian culture. So why would you expect to have a convergence? Uh, the systems will be different. They'll always be different. We just have to play with that, deal with that. Um, I think Canadian people, if we were to do opinion polls, I think they're coming around to see that. I think the election of Trump has, has opened people's eyes to the need to have a broader set of relationships. Actually, I wouldn't be surprised in opinion polls today if people see that you know, there's a small minority of people who see China as a threat. I wouldn't be surprised the same... About the same amount of people saw Trump, the United States is a threat in what it's doing and how it's playing the international system. I think there are more and more Canadians who understand 
and accept that we have to have two legs to walk. And that if we're going to continue being a strong trading nation, we have to engage with those people who are growing quickly in the world economy, who are innovating. You know, today the cultural capital of the world, heaven forbid, is probably Los Angeles, right? Hollywood. Who knows? Maybe 50 years, 75 years, it'll be Shanghai. So one thing I think we could focus on a lot more, and, and again, people in the universities who are here are doing this, but you're the converted, and that is getting more of our students to study in these regions, learning the languages. How many, how many Chinese students are studying uh, outside of China at the moment? I think it's about 300,000 a year who go abroad. And many of these students are coming back, and they're bringing the values they learned in the West and elsewhere back, and the practices. So they will also maybe have more impact on change than we will, pushing them. You know, John Z. Ming said to Bill Clinton in a meeting, when Clinton said, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, he said, Mr. Clinton, why are you so impatient? Because it, we're sending so many students abroad that in 25 years, all the people running China will have been educated in America. And so I think we have to also look at these things in the perspective of time. Uh, technology doesn't leave us a lot of time because it's forcing us to change. But we often, I think, when I listen to political and economic debate, it reminds me of this pre-Darwinian theory of spontaneous generation. You know, we just spontaneously emerge from swamps or something. Um, and that politics political events just spontaneously emerge. No, they have a context. They have a history. And we have to engage that history and context, and we have to be sure to not change from day to day, to fix our objectives and stick to them. Adapt as things evolve. Become hell or high water, you know, there are three or four things that we really have to do. And this engagement with Asia, in particular with China, is, I think, at the top of the list. Barbara, I, I know we don't have a huge amount of time, but if we had time for questions, I'd be very happy to, to take a few. Thank you. Thank you very much for your, your very inspiring presentation. I have a question uh, concerning the diasporic input of you know Chinese-Canadian community in Canada and how that would impact our, our relationship, Canada, with China. Because you talked a great deal about how we have to think outside the box. But we've had a growing community that has had link with China for a couple of years now. So I'm just wondering if you could talk about the sort of link that we could actually strategically use in uh, our trading. Um, so are you talking about the Chinese immigrants living in Canada? Or yeah, because you talked about the, the um, let's say, the Chinese international student coming into Canada or even the okay. United States, yeah. right? I understand. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, so I think that I see two parts to that uh, question. So let me take what you said first. Um, Deja, what portion of the students at uh, Sulich are from China? Sorry? Is it 20% you said? 22? And what portion of those students stay in Canada after they graduate? Almost everyone. For a while. For a while. Till they Even get a the Canadian uh, policy for foreign students. Plus, I want to get more experience. But based on that the alumni chapters we have in China, they are huge. So they are coming here, studying here, learn more, and then go back. Got it. So one of the issues this country faces is the population is, not, is aging and is not growing quickly enough, so we probably need a little more immigration. And so one of the sources could be the, these foreign students who come here, get great educations, uh, stay here, learn about our culture, and then, as Deja was saying, uh, have business contacts and go back to their country, that, that 
It's a long-term investment, but it's a great way to build build um, uh, relationships. The other way is um, these students stay forever, and they get jobs in our companies, and they then become point people for these relationships. And so those those two drivers together, I think, could make a difference. But then there's another group of, of people in this country, because we're a country of immigrants, uh, Chinese people who have an intense relationship with China. Uh, they're small business type people. And, you know, that's completely under the radar, but that is very intense. If you hold a meeting of the China Canada Business Council in Shanghai, you'll have three or 4,000 people who show up. Uh, you had a question. Um, just from a totally different, I'm not a business person, but I found what you've said fascinating. So given the difference in the negotiations that are going on, the dialogue, if how much influence will that Chinese culture have on us in terms of respecting of the elderly and the closing of the income gap? Wow. <laughs> um, you know, once I was... Uh, we had a basketball team when I was living in Tokyo and um, uh, at Goldman Sachs. And we decided to, um, you know, we had a little league among other banks. And one day we had to choose the captain of the team. And I had in mind one person who was a great player. And everyone got together and they finally said, oh, no, it's you, Curtis, it's you. And I said, why me? He said, because you're the oldest. <laughs> Right. Um, <clears throat> I see Western companies when they have a, a CEO, an Asian CEO or from China or Japan or Korea in particular, that they can't really fire, but they don't want him to stay CEO. They sort of promote him to be chairman. So he, in the West, you would say he's being kicked upstairs, right? He or she's being kicked upstairs. No, no, in China, he just has more power in that position, so it becomes even more problematic. Um, Inevitably, if we interact more with cultures that are different than ours, we learn more about ourselves because we learn more about them, right? And they have great some values that are very positive that can be part of our culture and some that don't fit our culture. That's how I would answer your question. I have a question, Ken. Um, we have been into China since '83 to deliver the first MBA program in China. What China was then, the world went to China. Right. Chinese didn't have to adjust to the rest of the world in languages, understanding culture. The rest of the world had to do that. I see a shift happening now. Right. If you take, for example, the agriculture situation, they are increasingly buying lands uh, in different parts of the world, Africa, Russia, and so on. Right. But they made a mistake they implanted a lot of Chinese workers in those countries, which created not a good right. perception of the Chinese. I think they're starting adjusting. They're also moving up in the product uh, categories. They are right. going to more advanced products. Right. And in that case, I can do what I have done with Volvo, as I finance Volvo, but that Volvo run the company, designed the cars, so as I understand. But I think increasingly China had to also reach out to the world. And that's what I see when we know training people in China and back here. They want to learn about foreign cultures. They want to learn languages beyond the English. Is that a more clearly emerging trend or only we see that? I, I didn't address this issue. It's, it's a complex issue. It's, first of all, an issue about Chinese investment abroad. Um, uh, even now, China is still getting 100, 110, 120 billion of direct foreign investment from outside. But I think we should expect China over the next 20 years to be investing 100 billion, 115 billion, 20 billion outside. And it's one of the great pools of capital. So we as a country have to come to terms with that. Remember, we had a third tier energy company that had three quarters of its assets outside of Canada, and we had a psychodrama, it's called Nexon. Psychodrama that the Chinese could buy it, a Chinese company could buy it for six billion dollars more than it was worth. And you know, we at the same time a company called Viterra, which was our only company 
still at the top end of the food chain in commodity trading, was picked off by Glencore, and there wasn't an article in the newspaper about it. Bit, bit strange. So we're going to see, if we want foreign investment, if we wanted foreign investment in the 1980s, it was America, Europe, and we had to then focus on Japan. And we did that, and we got a lot of Japanese investment. I think we need to make the same focus today. But we have to understand that much of, you know, 30% of China's economy is run by big, big state companies, and much of that investment, or some of that investment, will be from state companies, so we'll have to come to terms with that and deal with that. Um, secondly, as uh, Professor Horvath was saying, um, China is going out today to learn as much as it can from the rest of the world, but also to invest in technologies that it wants to hire, it wants to to, to get for its development. It has a population today that's now more than 50% urban, and it's urbanizing at the equivalent of one new New York City every year. So you know, less and less agricultural production domestically. So we're taking more food, great opportunity for us. Um, it will be setting up operations abroad. Their com Chinese companies will be setting up big operations abroad, and that hasn't happened before. Um, and also, I think, you know, the Chinese will have new ways of doing business. They'll, one of the things that this U.S. company, on where I'm on the board, we discovered the Chinese companies were using, our competitors were using the Internet much more aggressively in marketing, in the organization of their company, in their operations, client management, sales. Um, so they will use new technologies in sort of a new way. Remember the Chinese invented uh, fireworks? And then in the West, we had invented a technology to make bells with iron ore, right? Or copper. But when those two technologies came together, what happened? Well, we created cannons, right? Fireworks inside. Didn't it? So the Chinese will, because they're taking these technologies and they don't have a lot of baggage, they might leapfrog us. Surely they will leapfrog us and develop new ways of doing things that we haven't, we haven't figured out yet. So um, it's going to be going in both directions, I think, Deja. And that, that's another reason I think we gain so much by being focused on this and involved and risk losing a lot by not being involved and focused. Dr. Curtis, thank you so much for underlining the importance of international education. As an educator, I know and I can uh, attest, having been away for a while, that indeed we have gone, last one decade, we, we are lagging behind. Uh, so thank you for that comment. My comment would be, uh, uh, in terms of the Canadians, as we are looking forward, working with the Chinese, obviously we want to deal in areas where we are the best in the class. You commented on the technology trade areas. But looking next five, ten years, what are the two, three, four areas? Um, I'm reading about the AI, the medical field, etc. What are the areas that we will really, uh, we're the best in the class, that we have something to, uh, unlike perhaps others, uh, work and trade, uh, work with China? Professor, that's uh, an interesting question. We have to look carefully at what we have today and what we can create where we can be even, even stronger. I think one area is education, your area. Um, if we want to influence more how China evolves as a business culture, um, there are lots of things that we could do um, through the education uh, sphere. Um, I think another area we could, and George and I were talking a little bit about this over lunch, is Canada has, uh, the government has adopted uh, legislation to create a, a Canadian infrastructure bank. If that were of sufficient scale, and then 
and somehow became related with the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. And we created through our scale domestically, I'm doing a really ambitious program like building the national railways. So if, if that's what the investment bank, the infrastructure bank could drive, then we would have companies of scale that could compete in this massive build out of infrastructure in Asia. Um, so there's some, a couple of the areas, but I was in Montreal recently and I was just so surprised at how big the digital businesses were in Montreal and how much they're already deeply engaged in China. I didn't realize there are three nonstop flights between China and Montreal now. Three years ago, there were none. So it, it's moving. Um, I know uh, that Boeing won't be happy with this, wouldn't be happy with this, or other, maybe the US government wouldn't be happy with this. But Bombardier could do a, a big joint venture with the Chinese company and so there are some of the areas in which I think we could move, and I'm sure there are many others that, you know, if we brainstorm, we'd think of. I see the ladies are very dynamic on the question <laughs> side here. Is this on? Can you hear me? Hi. Um, so Ken, um, laced through your comments were references to um, high-tech enterprise. Mm -hmm. uh, emerging and growing, right. uh, and I'm certainly, it certainly resonated with me because I've been involved in the fintech sector for a bit, and you certainly see them as, as top-tier competitors. What, what I have a hard time reconciling is that trend, along with the R&D, which you indicate is supporting it, on the one hand, and the other hand, the enduring references to cyber, cyber crime, uh, and in the financial space, people comment that cyber crime, if you see both China and Russia as two major sources of the crime, has a very different uh, makeup across, across those two countries with, with Russia very, uh, very much in destructive mode, and um, China very much in get the IP mode. So um, two questions, is, is that a fair, has that ever been a fair characterization of the differences? But, but more, uh, more specifically, if it has been, is it changing? Uh, is, does China remain as dependent on IP theft as it might have 10, 15 years ago? I'm on a board of a company that's highly involved in in the tech space. And we believe that nothing we do is secure after six months. Our competitors, whether, wherever they're from, they're constantly re-engineering what we do. So it's not just China, it's everybody. Not just Russia, it's everybody who's involved in this. We had at the... Um, I was at a, a meeting recently, um, and we had uh, the U.S., head of cyber, whatever it's called, in, this, in, in, in the Pentagon, speak to us. And he spoke for 45 minutes, and it was all about China, a little bit about Russia, China, a little bit North Korea. Also, the French are a little bit devious. Uh, watch out for the Germans a bit. And at one point, a, a Swiss participant in the meeting, the CEO of a Swiss company, got up and he said, I'm listening to you, it's almost like America doesn't do any of this stuff. <laughs> um, and from what we know, America is the leader in this area, right? Um, I was checking out of my hotel the other day and the guy said to me, um, have you left anything behind? I said, maybe Putin's hi hiding under my bed. I mean, Putin, <laughs> the Russians are everywhere, right? Strangely, because two years ago, the Russians were about to collapse, we were told, right? With the sanctions, Putin would be out of business, he'd leave office. So it's, it's, it's the case that when, when a country doesn't have something, it tries to get it any way it can. Um, now that China has, 
is developing its own tech industries, and some of these companies are just really strong. Um, it's innovating. It's doing its R&D. Guess what? China's becoming really interested in IP protection. <laughs> and I think they will become a real supporter of IP protection. Um, what the criminal networks in Russia are doing and how they're related to government, I, ha I have no idea. Um, so I, I, really can't, uh, I really can't comment on that. Um, but what I do know is in the tech finance space, the Chinese are way ahead of us in the fintech area from, from everything that I can see. Um, and they have a scale, a scale that you know, is really, really significant. The issue now is that can they take that technology and the models they've developed and deploy them internationally? And if they can, then that's going to change how finance works around the world. Thank you, Barbara. Please welcome George Cook to thank our speaker. Barbara, thank you very much. And on behalf of the Empire Club of Canada and all of us that are in attendance today, it's my privilege to uh, thank Ken Curtis for what really have been incredibly both informative and thoughtful remarks. For a presentation that started with an economist struggling over the differences between sheeps and dogs, we've uh, quickly, I think, run through a, an incredibly insightful um, uh, overview of China uh, cast in both Asia and a very changing world, one characterized with uh, technological transformation and many uh, political and cultural challenges. Uh, very clearly from the uh, uh, participation of the audience in the Q&A, uh, people, people were both uh, interested, engaged, and otherwise understood the, the uh, uh, wisdom that you were sharing with us. For all of the above, I thank you very much and uh, look forward to when we might next uh, engage in this type of a discussion. Thank you very much. And Ken, thank you for being such a gentleman. I've been mispronouncing your name all day and you haven't corrected me, but uh, I've learned. <laughs> a, a sincere thank you to our sponsors, Omers, for making this event possible. Without sponsors like these great companies, the Empire Club lunches would not be possible, so we're extremely grateful for your generous support. We'd also like to thank MediaEvents.ca, Canada's online event space, for live webcasting today's event to thousands of viewers around the world. Although our club has been around since 1903, we have moved into the 21st century and are active on social media. So please follow us on Twitter at Empire underscore club and visit us online at www.empireclub.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and on Instagram. And please finally join, our, our next, join us for our next event on September the 28th with Jorge Orea, the President and CEO of Imperial Tobacco Canada, in conversation with Mike Apple at 1 King Street West. Thank you for your attendance today, and this meeting is now adjourned. Thank you.